Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 14th of December, as we record. Christmas is on the way and the Santa rally is in full effect, courtesy of some dovish rate cut predictions from the Federal Reserve overnight. We're starting today, though, by talking about interest rate rises, specifically the increases the regulator would like to see investment platforms offer on their clients' cash holdings. We'll wrap that discussion into our look at AJ Bell's annual results as well because the FTSE 50 platform published some figures last Thursday and has followed up with a bit more news this week following the FCA intervention. This week also sees the publication of the Investors Chronicle bumper Christmas issue, so we are going to be discussing just two of the many, many features contained therein, the first on British biotechs and the listed and unlisted opportunities on offer, the other looking at the oil price, which has been plummeting of late despite some OPEC cuts, We'll discuss the logic there and the potential impact on companies as well. Joining me to discuss all of this, having somehow survived the horrifically long queues at the FT Christmas party earlier this week, <laughs> are Val Cipriani. Hi, Dan. Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. Jennifer Johnson. Hello. Alex Hamer. Hey. Hi, everyone. Uh, so, yes, we've made it here at points on Tuesday evening. I thought we uh, might not make this podcast despite that being two days ago, but we're going to press on nonetheless and uh, draw a line under that. AJ Bell, we'll begin with. The annual figures, Alex, you didn't write them, but you've been looking at the company a little bit. It's an investment platform equivalent to Hargreaves Lansdowne, for those who don't know. Many listeners may well use it. Obviously, investment flows have been struggling a bit this year, but client cash for these platforms has been a bit of a moneymaker. What did you sort of make of the figures? What did you sort of make of the, the company? Can you outline that as well for people who don't know? Yeah, I, I suppose before jumping into the figures, it might just um, it might be useful to sketch a bit more about the the investment case around uh, AJ Bell because I mean lots of our listeners and readers will be familiar with them as an investment platform, maybe not so much as a company. Um, as you said, I mean they've been the cheaper challenger to Hargreaves Lansdowne's crown. Um, they floated with some very lofty expectations and a, and a really rich valuation about five six years ago. But putting aside the share price, which has been in a bit of a round trip, the company has in some senses delivered. Um, so in five years, net income is up from something like 23 to 68 million pounds, which is an annual growth rate of, of 25%. And that, you know, that really puts it in growth stock territory. Um, so a bit of a rarity in the London market. Um, and in the last or the latest financial year, everything was up. I mean, it, you know, it's not it wasn't the, the strongest year in some senses for um, client flows, but customer numbers, assets and fund flows to the the advised, the DIY and the AJ Bell source parts of the business were, were all up. So it's very strong. But the most eye-popping increase was in the it was in the revenue to, to assets um, ratio so that's uh, how much how much they generated in their their own top line relative to the the assets under administration um, uh, and the client assets they look after so that went from just under 23 basis points to 30 basis points and when you combine asset growth with a 32% jump in in, in that ratio then that explains why pre-tax profit was able to climb fifty percent, um, and how and how this happened exactly is as follows: lots of customers went into cash and kept it with AJ Bell, which kept a lot of that cash for themselves as rates went up. So they say between one point one five percent and point one five one five percent above base rate is 
what they capture. Um, but it, it, you know, it's pretty much that simple. It's, it sort of acts as free money for them. We've seen this a few times with investment platforms in recent years, as, as when rate cycles have really sort of moved up, uh, and the companies sort of acknowledge this themselves. So yeah, that's that, that's the broader background, and then the immediate background to, um, you know, the, the drama of the last few uh, the last uh, few days vis-a-vis uh, what is an appropriate amount to earn on a client deposits. Yeah, we have known that the FCA has been looking at this for a while. They've said so, and we've written about it as well. And there was a letter published by the FCA, one of their dear CEO letters, which makes it sound much politer than than it uh, often is, because it it tends to mean something is happening not to their satisfaction. Val, so what did this letter say exactly? It was to investment platforms in general, I should state, not just uh, the listed ones. But what did it say? Yeah, it was a letter to investment platforms and SIP providers. Uh, and basically it said that they are keeping too much of the interest rate that they get paid on cash balances. So the letter was partially based on a survey that the FCA did with the with platforms. And it said that the majority of the firms they spoke to uh, retain at least part of the, of the interest rate they earn on cash balances. Uh, and some of them, they retain up to 100%. And the average is about half of it. So obviously, it is, it is quite a bit. And basically, the FCA said that retaining a high percentage of the interest rates they, they earn on cash balances is not in line with what customers expect from these firms, uh, and it's unlikely to amount to them acting in good faith. So yeah, it was a you know polite language, but quite a strong worded letter in a way. And so the FCA expects platform to kind of like reassess the way they're doing this um, and rethink whether or not they are providing what they call fair value to customers, which is uh, a phrase we've kind of become a bit accustomed with since consumer duty came into effect um, a few months ago. Um, And then the other kind of like big points that big point that they were making is that some firms are doing what they call double dipping. Uh, So basically they charge a platform fees on the cash that customers hold with them. and then on top of that, they earn, obviously, interest rates on, on that cash. And the FCA is very much not happy with that sort of like way of doing business and has asked them to stop, basically. Mm. Uh, I think the, the listed platforms, Hargreaves and AJ Bell at least, don't do that, but no. some do. So, you know, there are some, some culprits here. I mean, are we able to identify uh, any uh, uh, culprits in terms of the, the rates they do offer? Because I think Robin Hardy, our, our colleague, uh, spoke a little bit about this this week. He he certainly had some opinions on who uh, who those platforms are. Yeah, I mean, he he was uh, implying that the wealth management wealth manager arms of of the big banks are sort of partly to partly to blame for this. Uh, and I mean, certainly, you know, the the sort of like the the platforms like AJ Bell, like Hargraves, as you said, they they do not charge if you hold cash, and they are you know, gradually improving the sort of rates that they that they do pay on that cash. Uh, whereas even if you just look at the sort of like standard savings accounts that some of the big banks provide, even outside of the investment side of things, uh, they really are quite low, especially for sort of loyal customers who have been with them for a long time. And so they, they're not trying to, you know, kind of like attract, when they're not trying to attract new customers, often the, the rates are really fairly low. Uh, so it's sort of an argument that makes sense, even though the FCA obviously does not name names. Mm. I know some of our readers have uh, complained specifically about the likes of Barclays before, and I think their cash rates are still quite low, so I'm going to name that name <laughs> as one. Uh, um, on their investment account, this is the, the smart investor side. The question really, I suppose, is well, one of the questions is how much 
is in the price and what's going to happen next. Because on the one hand, these cash rates have been rising this year, and that's not just as interest rates have risen. I think it's because platforms have been trying to uh, improve things at least slightly in an effort to stave off the regulator. Whether they've done enough is the question. Uh, share price reaction to the FCA letter was quite significant for Hargreaves and AJ Bell, initially down, I think, 7 and 9% uh, respectively. However, AJ Bell then did come out uh, on the same morning with some price changes uh, and some comments about uh, the FCA letter and and whether this was uh, the entire reason or not, it did finish down about 3%. So, you know, the market seemed a bit assured by that. But what were the changes it, it came out with subsequently and what did it say? Yeah, so AJ Bell said it was kind of already planning uh, these changes, obviously. Um, and uh, it was uh, mainly cutting some fees and improving uh, cash interest rates. So on the consumer platform, uh, which interestingly is where the majority of cash that AJ Bell actually has comes from, even though it's not the biggest part of the business. So on that side, uh, it is increasing interest rates uh, on basically all products and particularly on SIPs in drawdown, uh, which is where it argues that it makes sort of more sense for uh, investors to have a bit more cash because uh, it's obviously part of that kind of like cycle where you have to gradually maybe sell investments or get higher income to sort of then withdraw and, and pay your own pension, basically. So that was one side of thing. Uh, and then the other bit, which will probably interest readers who have um, an account with AJ Bell is that they basically are having trading fees. So it's now nine ninety five unless you're a frequent trader, uh, and it will become five pounds per trade. Um, and all of this will become effective from the first of April, twenty twenty four. So it is. It is a fairly significant cut. Um, AJ Bell says it's worth about fourteen million in total, and this also includes some other cuts to the advised. Uh, side of the business, um, which includes a few things like uh, some cuts to the annual fees uh, and scrapping some fixed rate charges for the SIPs. I think the other reassuring thing was they did say that all these changes and, and the you know increase on cash interest had been factored into their guidance for the next financial year, which they'd given last week in their annual results, which given those results saw the shares bid up quite a lot based partly on the amount of money they've been making from cash already. The fact they said they factored this in clearly provided some reassurance. The topic, I suppose, up for debate is whether these changes are enough, not just from AJ Bell, but whether the FCA is going to crack down harder on other platforms as well. The The point about SIPs is quite interesting about them saying that offering lower cash rates on ISAs is fair enough because that money is short-term cash that, you know, is just being parked by investors while they consider what to do with it and i.e. they're going to invest it very soon. Whether the FCA accepts that is up for debate. I know that one analyst this week said that that explanation was presumptuous and potentially confusing. So clearly there is uh, some debate about that. Alex, maybe I'll come back to you. The, the uh, investment case for holding AJ Bale shares, is there a cloud over that now or is that still pretty strong as we saw with the reaction to the results last week? In a sense, there's, there's a cloud over the whole sector, whether it's investment platforms or wealth managers or broader for, for the asset management industry, because these, you know, the, the consumer duty reforms 
are being, you know, it's a, it's a very much a sort of drip drip approach to how it's going to be enforced and the ways it's going to be enforced. And obviously it makes sense. And we've seen this with St. James Place um, over the summer. The big fish are the ones that the FCA is going to go after first. So the, you know, wherever there's accusations of, of, of genuine unfairness um, in, in the market, be it, um, you know, be it trapped clients or super high fees with poor performance or in this case whether you know it's it's in its interest rates not being um not being passed on uh to cash deposits um i i suppose that you know that that cloud is is going to remain over for anyone in this uh sector for the time being i mean aj bell itself is um is you know there's a higher rating than hargreaves lansdowne and you can totally understand that when you look at their their track record of, of eating into this market um uh, both since they listed and and prior to that um i, th- I think it's probably you know the sh- the shares are are fairly valued at the moment that there has to be a question over whether they can repeat this trick of the you know the sort of 70 million pound profit boost to their their income um generation of the last year um if that can be maintained given the 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 greater scrutiny and they have you know potentially sought to draw a line under uh the episode with this 14 million pound you know annualized cost saving for clients but they will come under pressure to do so um uh, again you know when other competitors respond in different ways i mean i, th- I think they're a very well run company and they've you know they've they've done very well at eating into a, a, a you know into a what was a monopoly um, market um at, at some points um, in the in in the past, but you know, I I think there's probably a question on whether this is necessarily a a value um, a value play. Um, but Julian thinks otherwise, so um, you know, count that against what I've said. Room for many opinions. Yeah, we're going to move on, but I should also say for those interested in charges on their investment platform and how they can. Uh, find the cheapest platform or the best platform for their needs. We do have a separate feature on that in the magazine this week, which Val has written, looking at uh, obviously not just cash charges, but the charges for holding uh, regular investments and for trading and what have you. So check that out if you're interested. We're going to turn now, though, to uh, another one of our features this week, which is on UK biotechs. Now, Jen, uh, you wrote this piece. Obviously, this is a sector which has had a tough time, as with all biotechs over the last couple of years, given high interest rates, etc. But there are some moves afoot to attempt to, shall we say, I suppose, increase the pipeline of companies coming through from the UK in this kind of space. What, what, uh, what have you been looking at and writing about with this piece? So I sort of decided to write this after the autumn statement where we heard the Chancellor announce this raft of new measures to support UK life sciences. Um, this is a sector that has been kind of designated as strategically important by the government for a number of years now, yet biotech activity in the London market um, is is kind of non-existent, uh, at least at the IPO level. So I wanted to get to the, the bottom of why this is and see what's kind of necessary to, to breathe new life into the sector. And... Why don't we, before we go on to, I suppose, the government plans, why don't we start with the, the companies themselves and the, the backdrop, which I alluded to just now. It's been a tough time in the UK and the US, but there are still some differences between the two in terms of appetite for these kind of companies. I mean, we have spoken about this kind of thing before, the relative interest in growth companies. That said, though, there, there are a lot of these companies in the UK. This is still a space at which the UK is quite good at you know developing these kind of innovations and companies as well 
Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, the, the global biotech sector has been in bear market territory for a couple of years now. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm singling out, um, you know, the UK as a particularly kind of sluggish um, place. But the kind of global state of the sector is due to a combination of factors. Many of the stocks lost momentum after the pandemic as investor enthusiasm cooled and these inflated valuations normalised. The other contributing factor is, as you've just alluded to, inflation and, and rising interest rates, which lead investors to abandoning sectors they view as high risk. Biotech is inevitably one of them. I guess it's also important to to kind of draw a line between biotech and pharma. Um, and there are different definitions, but biotechs tend to have uh, earlier stage assets and fewer of them. So pharmaceutical companies are your AstraZeneca's and your GSK's, which have a number of patented products um, that are on the market already and, you know, a quite substantial pipeline. So biotechs are the kind of smaller but often more innovative cousin to these sorts of companies. If you speak to US-based analysts and investors they would probably also kind of bemoan the state of the market there. There have been relatively few biotech IPOs on US markets this year, um, i.e. less than 30. And by virtue of being a smaller market with a smaller pool of available capital, activity in the UK has been even more muted. There are, though, I mean, this does feed into the, the other debate, one of the big debates of the year about listings in the UK versus the US. There are a couple of companies we look at in the piece and, and speak to uh, Immunocore being one, mm. a UK company which listed in the US in 2021, mm. which does happen, you know, because you can, there's a perception that you can sometimes achieve higher valuations over there. That said, uh, an investment trust that we've looked at in this piece and separately in, in recent weeks, uh, RTW, has, has gone the opposite way in a way. Uh, in in terms of how it lists and where it's looking for companies and for interesting investments, because it invests in these biotech companies and, and it is UK focused in many ways. Yeah, so it's listed in New York and listed in London. Um, it listed in London just prior to the pandemic. Uh, one of its most significant positions is the company you just mentioned, Immunicore, which was spun out um, of Oxford University over 20 years ago, though it listed on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. So when I spoke to um, one of RTW's managers, uh, they said that uh, it's interested in maintaining a London listing, having and maintaining this London listing so that they can basically keep an eye on the science and the spin-out companies emerging from the UK. The fact is we are home to a lot of interesting and innovative research. It just doesn't always translate into kind of wildly successful London-listed companies, or at least it hasn't in the past couple of years. But if you're a, an investment trust potentially interested in taking a stake in one of these companies and potentially seeing it through the IPO process, where, you know, wherever it decides to list, it pays to have an ear to the ground. At least that's what um, RTW thinks. And so what are the government's plans? I mean, these are early stage companies, but a lot of these plans are even earlier stage uh, focused on an even earlier stage of investment in many ways. But what does the government actually announce and what is it trying to do to, to bolster this uh, you know, innovative sector that we have and that we want to maintain and build up and that kind of thing? So funding of four and a half billion has been made available to unlock um, private investment in strategic manufacturing sectors is what, um, you know, they kind of call it in the government lingo, of which life sciences is one. So 
Jeremy Hunt announced that 520 million of this kind of overall pot is earmarked for for drug makers and other healthcare groups. Biotechs will also theoretically be helped by the merging of the R&D expenditure credit and SME schemes from April. Within this merged scheme, the the rate at which loss-making firms are taxed will be reduced from 25% to 19%, while the so-called intensity threshold will be cut from 40% to 30%. So this means that companies with an R&D investment to revenue ratio of 30 and above will now be eligible for tax relief. So whether these measures can jumpstart activity in the sector is kind of up for debate. Uh, Bears might say that there are some other structural issues with the UK economy and funding environment that will be difficult to overcome. But it's clear that policymakers are very much uh, trying to to kind of bridge this gap that we have between our, you know, high quality research that comes out of educational institutions and uh, this gap in our public markets. A lot of these companies come from the, quote, golden triangle, which is not the golden triangle that I recently learned from Alex uh, that exists in Norwich. That's entirely <laughs> unrelated. This is this is a life science golden triangle around uh, Oxford and Cambridge University. And well, a lot of companies... Not either. Sorry, go on. Not Myanmar either. Not Myanmar, no. No, there's probably many golden triangles around the place. But uh, this one is very much specifically north of London, Oxford, Cambridge, that kind of area. Mm. There are, as we've mentioned, uh, a lot of these companies spinning out of universities and, and there have been some changes or proposed changes to the way that those spin-outs work as well and the way that, uh, again, I think the government wants to encourage these kind of things to happen, but they want to encourage the entrepreneurs and make sure they have uh, what they deem to be a, a fairer chunk of the business. So there have been some changes to the guidelines or some suggestions as to how these spin-outs might operate in future. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, investors and company founders, uh, both within kind of biotech and in the larger sort of startup ecosystem, have a few long standing complaints about the spin out process. Issues cited include lengthy timelines prior to the completion of the actual spin out and also large equity stakes taken by the universities that they're spun out of. So there was an independent review into spin outs this year, commissioned by the government, and the results of that are these kind of 11 proposals that, um, you know, suggest a a smoother spinning out process. I think one of the life sciences specific suggestions was a guideline that for the life sciences sector, uh, university stakes and spin out should sit at around the 10 to 25% mark. So essentially, this is a review that's trying to highlight ways that the UK might better turn research into um, successful companies. And the government has indicated that it's kind of supportive of, of the findings of this review. And the final point maybe to note is there have been some pieces this year about a lack of lab space in you know this kind of area geographically as well, i.e. expansion is quite difficult in some cases because the infrastructure isn't there. I know this is something that uh, our property correspondent Mitchell Labiak has been writing about as well in relation to things like life sciences REIT. I mean, how much of an issue is that for expanding the sector in general and for for companies? Commercial landlords and developers clearly think it's a serious problem. So kind of most recently on this front, there's a survey published by British Land uh, that claimed that the supply of life sciences real estate is failing to keep up with demand. And that does appear to be a sentiment that's echoed across the sector. 
Uh, I should also note that these are really highly specialised spaces. These aren't just office buildings that need, you know, infrastructure for, for setting up computers and internet connections. Um, these are labs and companies need the space to potentially scale up quickly. Um, and really what the, the property side of things and the property sector is recommending is planning reforms. Um, so there are a number of kind of factors, domestic and international, that have left UK biotech in its current state. So it's going to take policy initiatives and reforms on the, you know, on the property side of things, on the kind of startup and spin out side of things. And that will, in theory, encourage investment. But rate cuts, it should also be said, will no doubt help as well. The bull case really is unfavourable conditions can't keep good science down. So we'll see. We'll see what, um, if anything, all of this potentially adds up to. Indeed. Well, yeah, you've got to put your faith in the, uh, the well, I can keep saying innovation, the innovative nature <laughs> of these people and the creations they have. And we've seen lots of good companies come out of that. So long may that continue. Uh, and one final side note there, having just done a, a, a swift Google, the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia that uh, Alex alluded to. If you want to know more about that, it's one of the largest opium-producing areas of the world since the 1950s. But I think that will be a whole different podcast. <laughs> I mean, biotech? Well, mm. very different. Very different, <laughs> Alex. There's no uh, no connection there at all. Um, the Norwich Golden Triangle is much cleaner than all of this. Yeah, so. no science or opium there. No. Something else. <laughs> okay, anyway, Alex, uh, Alex Hamer, we're going to turn to you now with our final segment, looking at oil, because uh, in amongst the, the big market rally of recent weeks, uh, another story that... Some people may have missed uh, has been the fact that the oil price has been dropping quite significantly. That's despite OPEC, or OPEC Plus, as they they now are trying to um, prop up the price somewhat with supply cuts. Can we discuss first of all how and why this is happening? What what's happening? What's causing the price to to drop? Yeah. So oil, just to start off with the easy numbers, um, Brent, um, I just checked it, um, is seventy four. WTI is is a bit lower. Um, as is as is usual, that's the US um, price, and that's come down from Brent was ninety seven uh, two months ago, and WTI was a bit was a bit lower. It's it's partly because there's just a lot of supply at the moment. I think what you know you mentioned OPEC, what they're really trying to do is 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 push the price up um, above eighty dollars uh, a barrel, and it's not working. And and one of the reasons. Or a few of the reasons include um, U.S. production is really high. The, the producers there have put a little bit more investment into the Permian and, and Gulf of Mexico this year, um, relaxing some of the so-called discipline um, that we saw last year. Um, so they've reinvested some of that, that those those extremely high profit, and that's more the the mid-sized producers and um, who've, who've been doing that. And then we also saw more supply from Iran um, and Venezuela. And the US is just considering what it's going to do about its six-month freeze of some of the, 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 the limits on Venezuelan oil exports, which they, they brought in to try and encourage them to hold elections next year. And Venezuela has responded by trying to take a chunk of Guyana, um, which, which is also interesting in oil terms because that's offshore Guyana is where ExxonMobil has significant reserves and as does chevron so i wouldn't be surprised if, if the u.s reacts fairly aggressively to that if venezuela tries a bit anything more on, on the u.s point and the, the fact that u.s is big oil exporter now does seem to be playing a big role here as you say i mean does that mean that opec no longer has the power it once did 
or is it a bit too soon to say that? Could you know there are other things at play here as well? Is it? It's not necessarily going to be totally uh, incapable of propping up the price in the future if it wants to. It it largely comes down to how much production Saudi Arabia itself, as the dominant player in OPEC, is is willing to 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 shut down or, or willing to to let come off. Um, they've already, I think, this year alone, they've 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 paused two and a half million barrels a day of production, and they they've continued that uh, from the last meeting, and then. At the same time, you've got OPEC members, Iraq, Nigeria, who haven't, you know, met their side of the bargain. You've, you've, as I said, you've got Venezuela and Iran, who are involved, but they weren't part of the production cuts. And so there is a limit to how much they can actually pull out of the market. And the Saudi energy minister said last week that that he was confident they could get those cuts actually coming through. I think there's another 2.2 million barrels that should come out of the market if OPEC really is in charge over the next few months, but it, it, you know, if they haven't managed to control it so far this year, then, then there are real questions over that. Um, but I mean, the other, the other side of all this, you know, we talk a lot about supply, but it's a market that, that does really change if there are global shockwaves. So, so at the moment people are talking about whether the Strait of Hormuz is closed, um, you know, we, we saw the recent price jump up um, when, you know, in, in the in the week or so after Hamas attacked Israel. And then as that conflict has, has escalated, the, the, the price of oil went up and it, you know, got high 90s. Um, as I said, that was that, that, that peak two months ago. Um, so as it stands, you know, speculators and, and institutional buyers seem less concerned about something... Um, significant happening over there specifically related to energy markets but you know things could kick off again something might change in Ukraine that 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 hits Russian exports you know that anything could happen basically. The price nonetheless the oil price is about a two-year low currently so notwithstanding those potential uh, you know catalysts for a move in the other direction at what point will or might this start having a material effect on companies of various sizes in in the sector and you know outside the sector? Well, I think we, we think largely about um, Shell and BP, and they are insulated somewhat from these price changes due to their trading divisions, due to their downstream and midstream divisions, which means these lower prices rattle down the supply chain. So you, you if you're refining it, and I don't have refining margins off the top of my head right now, which is a shameful thing to admit on a podcast about oil, but, um, you know, they do have insulation from prices coming down. It will impact them. But often when energy prices are a lot more volatile is when their trading divisions make a ton of money. And at the moment, they're just a bit a bit weak. And then for the mid caps, it does really have an impact. You've got companies that are hugely hedged, um, which means they cut the top off the gains they get uh, at a time like last year. But they also are once again insulated from, from the lower prices. But yeah, you see a lot of hedges kick in kind of 70, 75 so we're almost we're around that mark, but yeah, second half earnings will probably be um, a bit lower, which is not unexpected given how how strong they were a year ago. Mm. Some tough comparatives, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and next year, in general, in the piece, we also look at you know some oil price forecasts as, as you know that's probably one of the hardest things in the world to forecast the oil price uh, twelve months out, let alone two months out. But what are the other factors that could influence it? You know, China also is a is a big sort of marginal factor here as well. Yeah. I mean, China's economy rips up 
next year um, through massive surplus, they'll need more oil, basically. There seems slight indications that there'll be some more stimulus, but you know, nothing that's going to change the dial hugely. Um, and also the Chinese market is linked a lot with, um, so they're buying Russian oil, they'll take that Iranian supply as well. So they're kind of operating obviously in the same market, but there's also, they aren't competing for the same barrels, basically, as we might be in Europe or, you know, or the States. And obviously the States is exporting anyway. But I think the interesting thing is what Saudi Arabia will do because their whole government is run on oil money. Um, they have what's called a, a fiscal break even where they kind of need oil to be between 80 and I think $88. The, what's the IMF puts it at, you know, so they can afford to pay Karim Benzema. You know, there's these, you know, tangible links between the, the work of the public investment fund, which owns 8% of Saudi Aramco and the oil price. And they've got a pretty big budget to... To, to, to balance and if oil's at $74, they're, they're struggling to do that. So the question is how they, you know, how they keep the price up and it seems like the cuts aren't working. So more cuts, do they give up more market share? Their, their production's dropped um, fairly significantly even in the past year. So how do they, how do, they do that? I mean, they, they lean on OPEC members somehow, not worked currently, but yeah, it, I think it's a really interesting moment because that that iron fist of of, of OPEC seems to be um, seems to be weaker than before. And the flip side, I suppose, of that is in the US. You know, next year is an election year, and uh, the government certainly will be wanting to keep gas prices as low as possible. Running into that, so competing interest there as ever. Uh, just to conclude, uh, you wanted to say something else about uh, COP twenty eight because it has been the UN climate change conference the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, this is this is not not related to the energy market because they they operate in in very different worlds. But the idea of um, companies being pushed towards a, a phase out, I think, was the, the or a phase down um, was the argument. Um, and given that it was in the UAE and they are pretty friendly with the Saudis, the 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 discussion over the weekend was how much to talk about fossil fuels and they got fossil fuels into the statement um whether that actually has an impact is is unclear but you know i mean this feeds back into the narrative that saudis are a bit worried um over where the energy market is going and you know i think both sides felt like they came off with a bit of a win with this cop statement um which i don't know where that leaves the rest of us yeah, well, in the long term, we're going to find out somehow, aren't we? Or maybe the short and medium term as well. But uh, but yes, as I say, that is a uh, feature in the bumper issue, which is on sale today as you hear this podcast, if you're listening on the Friday. That does bring us to the end of today's show, though. So thank you very much to everyone. Thank you to Alex Hamer, Alex Newman, to Jen, to Val, and to our producer, Matty Apthorpe. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Market show. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.